land and offspring. This is a repeated promise to them. Both try to pass off their wives as their sisters out of fear of Abimelech. And both. big of a deal in the Genesis story. One commentator characterized him as the ordinary son of a great father and the ordinary father of a great son. Kind of a sad description. Another commentator said almost everything, I, everything Isaac is said, is said to have done is recorded in Genesis 26. And even here, the significant thing is not so much what he did in itself, but rather that, it, that is that is was so much like the early years of Abraham. And if you remember the early years of Abraham, they were marked by failures and sin. And this is mostly what we see Isaac repeat. And what this really tells us, once again, is that the people we meet in the Bible are way more ordinary and messed up than our childhood Sunday school classes led us to believe. In other words, they look a lot like us. And this is vital for us to understand because it, because it affects how we think about God and in turn how we live our life as a Christian. Because if you have a, a, a really high anthropology, a really high view of, of humanity, then, you, then God will be small to you. You will think very little of him. But if you have a low anthropology, you have a low view of man, you will have a high view of God. You will think much of him. And you will see your need of him always. He won't just be this kind of figure in the background that you can run to when things get too hard for you. But he will be this constant presence in every moment of your life. So to see Isaac in this way is not to disparage him, but to be able to see God more clearly at work. Because Isaac doesn't get in the way here. We're not tempted to say, look at how great Isaac is. What a, what a hero of the faith he's been for us. But rather, look how faithful God is to Isaac. Look how faithful God is to continue to do two things that will be our two main points this morning. One, look at how faithful God is to preserve the promise and two, look at how faithful God is to confirm the blessing to Isaac, someone who really doesn't deserve it, humanly speaking. So preserving the promise and confirming the blessing. So first, preserving the promise in verses 1 through 11. So in these first 11 verses of this chapter, we see God's faithfulness not through Isaac's obedience, but rather we see it through his disobedience. So we see two failures in Isaac's life almost right away in these verses. The first failure is seen in verses 1 through 6. So here we have this familiar scene um, from Abraham's life that also involved a famine and also involved going down to Egypt in Genesis chapter 12 to go get some relief to see if we can be uh, saved by the Egyptians in this famine to see if they have supplies that we need. 
So if you remember in the Abraham story, this is where Abraham and Sarah go to Egypt. And also when Abraham lies to Pharaoh about Sarah being his sister and not his wife. So it's a weak moment for Abraham and also puts the line of promise in jeopardy because of his foolishness. Yet it's God's intervention, once again, that rescues. Not Abraham's actions. It's God who pulls him out of his his foolishness and his failures. And now in chapter 26, Isaac has been put into almost the exact same situation. It's another famine. He's going down to Egypt again. and And he sadly does exactly what his father does. He is making his way towards Egypt. Look at verses 1 and 2. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham, meaning this was a different famine. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land which I shall tell you. So the famine is driving Isaac toward Egypt, the place he knows he is not supposed to go, but the place he also knows where he can get some relief. And he does this based on his father's failures there. And we know this because when he stops at Gerar, God speaks to him there and tells him not to go to Egypt. That's how we know he was going to Egypt, because God stops him in this city. Now remember... Egypt was, was, a bad, was bad because it represented the world at that time. And also, it cannot be the place of God's blessing. So you see that even when you get into Exodus, God takes them out of Exodus before he takes them into, or takes them out of Egypt before he takes them into the promised land. And so Isaac's attempts to go there shows his own lack of trust in God's promises, uh, just like his father. And here we would expect God, I think, to say something like, have you learned nothing from your father's sin? Have you not looked back over your father's life and, and said, man, I am going to try to avoid that at all cost? But he doesn't. And this is where I think the critics are proven wrong when they say uh, that, that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath And that the only thing that he wants to do is to smite those who don't obey. And then when you get into the New Testament, that's where you meet the God of love in Jesus. And that's just a a wrong way to look at it. Because here we see God's love and mercy towards his people. He showed no impatience whatsoever with Isaac. Instead, he appears to Isaac to tell him to stay put. And then goes on to remind him of The promise in verses 4 through 5. Look there with me. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So this is significant because it's the same promise that God gave Abraham in chapter 12 and chapter 15. And now God, by doing this with Isaac here in Gerar, is extending his promise to the next generation and reaffirming, despite Isaac's underwhelming life, that Isaac is still the one, that Isaac is still the promised child. And what this really tells us is that nothing 
frustrates God's sovereign plan. Not even our own foolishness. So in verse 6, we see Isaac affirms his belief by obeying God and staying in uh, Gerar. Yet even though he believes God's word, um, he believes that God, this is true, that he is the promised one, he still almost immediately falls into his second failure in verses 7 through 11. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. For he feared to say, My wife, thinking, lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of the window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. So let me just stop there to say, like, how could laughing prove that? I mean, I, we laugh with a lot of people here. That actually is, I don't know why the ESV doesn't translate it this way, but that actually is more of an intimate word there that they mean, almost like in a, like a sexual way as well. Not sure why Abimelech was spying on them in that way. That's another uh, story for another day, but that's what that, that means there. This is what Abimelech saw them doing. So it wasn't just laughing together. There was much, uh, much more going on in that moment. So in verse 10, Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Now, almost immediately when I was studying this text, a New Testament equivalent came to my mind to Isaac's actions here, uh, and that would appropriately be Peter in Matthew chapter 16. If you remember this story, uh, Peter is the one who professes Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus, you know, exalts him in a way there. And then almost in the very same breath, when Jesus is beginning to speak about his own crucifixion and what he has to do for our sin, Peter rebukes him. And in that moment, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So here you have this highly exalted moment for Peter. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. Rebukes Jesus, God, and then is called Satan by Jesus. And so here we have Isaac having a similar thing happening to him. He has this uh, face-to-face interaction, so to speak, with with God himself to, to personally reiterate the wonderful blessing and immediately, it seems, Isaac repeats the sin of his father by lying about who his wife is. Lying about his wife for his own protection in verse 7. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister, for he feared to say my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. So do you realize what just happened there? In verse 4, the God of the universe clearly says to him, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, and I will give you the land in which they will live and thrive and be blessed by me. In other words, God says, I will give you a lot of kids and all the land they will need to live. This is a massive promise that he's just been told. To which Isaac responds with fear of man (laughs) and a lack of faith in God to preserve his life, who just told him, I'm not only going to preserve your life, I'm going to preserve generations that are going to come from you. And Isaac fears this 
little king in these people. But Isaac's lack of faith can also be a mirror to our own lack of faith in God's care for us, can it? One commentator pointed out that Isaac probably had known a few miracles that had taken place during that time. He probably uh, knew very clearly about creation and the flood. He probably knew about the story of his own birth, I'm sure, that his father and mother told him that on more than one occasion. Even even him being present when he is going up the mountain, like we just uh, sung about, um, and seeing God provide the lamb to be put to death instead of him. But for us, we know of many miracles. We have the complete Old Testament and New Testament that tells the entire story of God. We have scholars and books that are being written almost daily to explain these things to us, even to prove them to us. We get to read and learn about Jesus, the Son of God, as as much as we could Alexander the Great or Martin Luther King Jr. We, We confess belief in the virgin birth, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the infallible word of God, the Bible. We, we, we all have a copy of that right now, at least physically or on our phone. We confess that we are saved by grace and grace alone. And we celebrate that. We, we worship God because of that. Yet when trouble comes, we fear for our safety. Or, or we believe God won't provide again uh, when we, when we uh, are, are in need. And, and often in those moments, we sin because of that fear and anxiety. So again, we are, we are more like Isaac than we probably like to think that we are. So in verses 8 through 9, Isaac's sin is exposed by Abimelech, by this pagan king. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of the window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say, She is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. So the theological lesson to learn here is that the promises of God uh, do not come without responsibility on the one that has been promised. So this is, this is why the author of Genesis, Moses, makes this connection between Isaac and his father. He wants us to see this. Because Abraham <clears throat> is held up to Isaac as the epitome, the epitome of obedience to the laws of God. It was credited to him as righteousness, Genesis tells us. And just because Isaac is given the promise does not excuse him from obedience to God's commands. And the same is true for you and I. If if we call ourselves Christian, we are privileged with amazing promises from God in Christ. A lot of the same promises that Isaac had. We are part of the promise line. But that doesn't excuse us from obedience to his commands. It doesn't mean that we can just kind of cheaply receive this grace and do whatever we want and live however we want. Paul says it this way in Romans 6, 1 through 4, dealing with the same sort of problem. <clears throat> what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in the Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So if your life is marked by grace, this grace that you are marked by should then overflow through your obedience to God's commands. So if you're marked by this grace, grace should overflow out of your life in the way that you live, in the way that you speak, in every single aspect of your life. So this is why Jesus can say in Matthew 5.16, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Or John 13.34-35, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, by this love that we have for one another, people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Because you see, a life lived for God is not passive. Rather, it's an active portrayal of the gospel in our life together. And this, Jesus says... This is what gets the attention of the world. This is what points others to the Father. This is what will give glory to God when we live life like this. Now, sadly, Isaac shows us the other way Christians can get attention from the world, and that is through disobedience. This is what we hear about in the news nowadays. And the one who sees Isaac's disobedience is this pagan king who quickly sets him straight. Which also shows that Isaac was never really in any danger from this man or from the people of the land, the Philistines. But it's through Abimelech, once again, that God in his mercy uh, uses him as a protective barrier, so to speak, for Isaac. He puts this protective, nobody can touch these people. If you touch these people, I will kill you personally, is what Abimelech is saying. So he does this to protect their marriage, essentially to protect the land. But ultimately, what God is doing here through Abimelech is he is protecting the promise. He is protecting his promise through this pagan king. And Isaac's going to need it because he remains in the land for quite some time uh, after all of this takes place. Because God not only preserves the promise he is also going to confirm the blessing to him. This, that's in our second point, in verses 12 through 33. So in verse 11, we leave off with the king offering this protection for Isaac. And this, of course, allows Isaac to live safely in the land, to pretty much do whatever he wants, to make as much money as he wants, and he prospers in the land of the Philistines. Yet even though God allows Isaac to prosper... This doesn't mean that's where God wants him to stay and to remain. Remember, he's not in the land of promise yet. So it's interesting how much we, we too look, out, look at outward accomplishments as a sign of God's kind of thumbs up to what we are doing or the way that we are living our life. So that just because you have a lot of success, that is where God wants you. You're making a lot of money and you have some good relationships and, and all, everything to be, seems to be clicking along. doesn't always mean that, that that's where God wants you because all of those things are happening. 
Or we might look at people on Instagram and think, well, God must approve of them because they are being blessed so richly, at least more than I'm being blessed, it seems. Or sometimes we look at other churches that have a large Sunday attendance and say they must be doing something right. They must be doing something right according to God because there's a lot of people there. People are flocking to that place. And just an FYI, Joel Osteen's church, who I'm sure none of us would say yes and amen to in this place, um, has 45,000 attendees a week. So we might look at Isaac's prospering in the same way. And yes, for some strange reason, God does work in this way. It's kind of unexplainable. We don't really have an answer to that of why God does that particular thing. But he chooses to bless even those outside of his will for their life. And that's the case for Isaac here. But the blessing is not without problems. Look at verses 12 through 14. Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. So the last bit is key because that's the beginning of God providentially moving Isaac back to where he truly needs to be, which is the land he has promised to him. So first, the Philistines, in in response to their envy of Isaac, they stop up his wells. It's the first thing they do. That doesn't really move Isaac. I guess he's thinking, well, I I can just dig some more. It's pretty easy. I'm a very rich man. So that doesn't work. And so now Abimelech himself, the king, comes to tell Isaac, get out. You are causing trouble in our land. We are actually fearful of you. You need to leave. So he leaves, but he doesn't go very far. The text tells us that he goes from uh, Gerar to the valley of Gerar. So he's still technically there. And so my suspicion is uh, uh, Isaac is thinking, I've made a lot of money in this land. I've been very prosperous here and I don't want to get too far away from it. So I'll leave, but I'm just going to go up here to the valley. So he begins to settle there, digs wells again, and it doesn't take very long before he's met with more conflict that causes him to move again. So so from the valley, he moves to Canaan, which is closer, and from there to Beersheba, where Abraham lived and prospered, if you remember. And this is the place where Isaac should be. This is home, because this is the land that God had promised to Abraham way back in chapter 12, verse 7. And this is where God confirms his blessing to Isaac. Look at verse 24. So when he reaches Beersheba, God says to him, And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant servant Abraham's sake. So God is letting Isaac know you are still the one. You are still the promised son. And Isaac affirms this in verse 25 by finally doing something his father did that was beneficial. He worshipped. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pinched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. So he worships. 
in the place where he is supposed to be. Now, I want to highlight that last sentence in verse 25 because it tells us way more than just Isaac's servant, servants kind of going out and doing a DIY project and, build, and digging this well. Because the subject of wells, you may have noticed when Brett was reading and the verses that I have read so far, they show up a good, a good bit in these 33 verses. We saw it also in Abraham's life as well. He would dig wells and there was controversy around the digging of the, of the certain well that he dug. But they are telling a story, these wells are telling a story about God's confirmation to Isaac. So in verses 15 through 21, all of the wells Isaac had dug were met with envy, strife, and contention with the people of the land. Every single time. They either filled them up or they, they stole them back from him or whatever they did. They were envious, there was strife, there was contention, it was not good. And each time... Each time something happened with one of these wells, it was pushing Isaac, in God's providence, back home. Until verse 22, when a well is finally dug that causes no conflict whatsoever, and he names it, the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. So this well being dug and having no contention around it is a sign to Isaac that God is on the move in his life, that God is blessing him, that God is fulfilling the promises to him. Now, a well in ancient times was not just a source of water, uh, but a symbol of blessing and establishment. So that was the way you would put down roots, so to speak, in the land that you were trying to settle. So God wasn't just giving Isaac a place to settle. He was establishing the future nation of Israel in that place. A people that would outnumber the stars of heaven and the, and the sand on the sea. God was creating a place of promise and blessing for Isaac and his offspring by bringing him back home. So just to ask you the question... What is it taking God to get you home? Maybe you're running from him. Uh, and, and even though you, you may be financially secure, vocationally satisfied, uh, relationally rich, meaning God is blessing you, but at the same time, while God is blessing you, like Isaac, the path that you are on is being troubled. Has it been envied? Has it been strife or contention with other people? All these things that troubled Isaac's way. Maybe it's sickness or pain or loneliness that's kind of unsettling you and you don't know why. Because the danger here in those moments of strife and contention and sickness or pain or loneliness, the danger here is when you're feeling these things is to think, oh, it's just a season. I hear that a lot. It's just a season. I'll just muscle through it. I'll just get through it, and that's what will happen. I'll just get through it. But I would challenge you that instead of thinking that right, because it could just be a season. You could be right about that. But I would challenge you in those moments when you're tempted to think that way to recognize that these things are from God. Whatever conflict it might be, whatever, whatever uh, stress it might be, whatever suffering you might be walking through, to, to look at it as from God. They are his messengers. 
Because these are things that are not just put in your life to make you unhappy or to make you doubt or to do whatever it is that you would do towards God because you're suffering or having a hard time or whatever, whatever it is. You need to understand and believe that the reason God is doing those things in your life is he's bringing you to worship. He, he, is, he is wanting you to receive the fullness of the blessing that he has for you. He's drawing you close when you're running away. So I would encourage you, if you feel this way or when you feel this way, because it's, it's going to happen eventually, to enlist the help of your church community, to, to enlist those around you that, that know you. And, and that sometimes has to happen outside of your home. So it's not just your spouse who's telling you, no, 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 everything's fine. You need other people to speak into your life because I always say other people kind of give you a different angle on your life that you may not be able to see. And so seeking wisdom from people, really just not doing it by yourself. So back to the text. In verses 26 through 33, we have this interaction between Isaac and Abimelech, and then the commander of Abimelech's army, uh, Phicol, which seems really odd, um, and it's happened, it happened in Abraham's life too, so this is, again, another repeat that we see, um, but, but it, it's, it's so odd that Isaac recognizes that it's odd, and he asks in verse 27, why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? He's saying, look, you, I know you guys don't like me, you envy me when I was making all this money in your land, and you kicked me out of your city. Why would you come to me? And then Abimelech answers in an unexpected way in verses 28 through 29. We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have not done to done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. I love that. I love that he says, we see plainly, plainly, that the Lord has been with you. It is obvious that God is with you. And so once again, God uses Abimelech in Isaac's life here. And this time is to confirm his covenant blessing with him. You have been blessed of God. You have, been, you have been promised all of these great things, and God is at work, so much so that we are afraid of you. So using these pagan, uh, pagan officials to say, it's obvious that God is at work in your family, and we are compelled to make a pact with you so that you will not harm us. Because we know what your God can do. And so God's blessing is seen by these men. It's obvious to them. So when Isaac was out of God's will and out of blessing, Abimelech kicks him out of the land. He moves him along. And now he's back where he belongs. Abimelech confirms God's blessing upon him. So Isaac is still the one, and everyone knows it. Everyone knows he's the promised child. So if you think about it, Genesis 26 is, is really just a record of Isaac's sin and failure. And, and also, since so much of his sin is a repeat of his father's sins and failures, it's highlighting Abraham as well. 
Yet nowhere else in the entire Bible, not even in Genesis, do we find God bringing this sin and failure back up. He never hints that somehow Isaac almost lost the promise. He never talks about how Abraham and Isaac both lied because they they didn't trust in him and they feared these men over him. He doesn't doesn't bring back up that that Isaac almost lost the blessing or almost disqualified himself um, from being in the line of the Messiah. Never brings it back up. In fact, the opposite is true. Because Isaac does appear again in the scriptures, in Hebrews chapter 11. And we know that great chapter is the the chapter of faith, the hall of faith. And, And in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, God actually praises Isaac and is not ashamed to be called his God. And when you look at the rest of his spiritual bio in Hebrews chapter 11, God passes over all of the events of Genesis 26 and focuses instead on blessing Isaac's son, the blessing of Isaac's son. In uh, Hebrews 11.20, he says, By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. And that's it. So let this be an encouragement to you today. Because like Abraham, like Isaac, and even like Jacob and, and the rest of the Bible characters that we'll see throughout Genesis, we fail and we disappoint God in many ways, both large and small. But just like Isaac, God does not hold your past sins against you either. In fact, he says in Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And the only way this happens It's because he too remembers his promises to us. That that we have been bought and sealed by the blood of his dear son, Jesus Christ. Not by anything that we are doing, anything that we've said, but the promise that he was going to save his people from their sins. And he does that. And he rescues us. And he says that we are forgiven. And you can believe that because it's a promise from God. And also, through Christ he also brings you all the way home. We are sons and daughters of the promise, and therefore God cannot turn away from us. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you again for reminding us of your great promises